Welcome to Singing Teachers Talk, the podcast that brings you great interviews, insightful discussions and advice around the topic of singing and teaching singing. Now it's over to your host for today's episode. It's me, Alexa Terry. Jenny Morton, if you could travel backwards or forwards in time, which era would you choose and why? I'd like to go forward, although I don't really believe in the concept of linear time, but I'd like to go to somewhere we haven't been yet from uh, our human perspective and into a a place where artistry is honoured a lot more than it <laughs> currently is. It's seen as the 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 leading the you know I always see that artists kind of drive evolution really because it's the artists who go look at life this way, look at life this way, don't look at it the same, and that's what helps us see life. Um, in in new perspectives which give people choices if the artists weren't there people might just be doing the same thing over and over and I feel like art has typically only been lauded from the future looking back at the past oh those beautiful paintings of the renaissance where those artists died in poverty and were not honored in their time so I'd love to live in a time where art is is given the value that I think it has for for society and uh, is supported in that way. And this, of course, would be a timeline where we didn't need money and all these things. We were just, we had free energy and we could just be the full expression of ourselves without having to worry about that being attached to a particular income to pay rent, which again can, can stifle a lot of our artists because they feel like they've got to do get a proper job, right? Mm, yeah, I feel like your answer is way deeper than mine. <laughs> ah! <laughs> I, I would really love to uh, go back to the 19th century. I'm just fascinated by the Victorians and how they advanced certain things and, and the entertainment of the time and the social attitudes and the fashion, the way people thought, because some of their thinking was a little bit funky. Like, for, for example, not to turn this into a history podcast or anything, Jenny, but the, the Victorians believed that getting up at dawn made their lips look better, brighter and more red. Yeah. And that wearing a corset would help support the woman's internal organs because they were believed to have a weaker torso. Oh. Yeah. Which just, can be a problem for singers. Can be um, a very big problem for singers wearing a corset. And having said that, though, the corsets were also there because of postural benefits. And that's uh-huh. what we've got together to talk about posture and singing. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes when I actually cross the room and catch myself in the mirror looking like a cross between Quasimodo and a banana. (laughs) I do wonder if we miss a trick wearing no corsets in the 21st century. Well, it's like be your own corset. It's kind of the the trick, really. Yeah, well, I like that. I like that idea. I like that idea. But I was reading an article recently um, which claimed how some health experts are concerned that as humans we're going to develop into these kind of hunchbacked, clawed hand, red-eyed beings due to these changes in lifestyle, like working from home, um, which came as a result of the pandemic. 
something that I've seen as an osteopath sort of having sort of started treating people before we were in the whole phone and laptop era. And I've definitely seen a change in, you know, what we call the tech neck, you know, from being hunched over phones and, and laptops all day, you know, and seeing changes in a much younger age than you would have done previously because now we've got young people who are in their developmental stage are shaping around these devices. So they're getting into fixed postures a lot earlier than um, someone, you know, might have done in years gone by. So I do think it's an issue, but I feel like we've kind of reached the apex of that because now we're getting more into the hands-free and maybe the virtual and, you know, there's other problems associated with that. But I feel like we've we've sort of taken that as far as it can go, really. So I'm hoping that we might evolve out of it. But, you know, just the headaches and things I'm seeing in people and neck pain and is just so much more amplified than it was say 20 years ago. Why have some of these postures actually become comfortable and if they aren't optimal have we just missed the memo from our body to say oi this isn't good? (laughs) Yeah this is something I get asked all the time you know because when if I'm working with someone and I'm aiming to get them back into neutral optimal posture and I say it's so much more efficient for your body and la, la, la. But they're like, but it feels like such hard work. Yeah. So our bodies are kind of, you know, like plasticine in a sense. Whatever you do habitually becomes habituated. So if you if we take that example of the sort of rounded shoulders, the neck poke forwards over a phone or a laptop, what happens is the soft tissue, the connective tissue at the front starts to become shortened. Essentially, if you think of, um, you know, if we look at muscles, first of all, if you ask a muscle to work, obviously it's going to contract and it requires energy to do that. So if you've got your head bent forwards over something, the muscles at the back of the neck or the, and the trapezius muscles and some of the neck muscles are gripping to counterbalance the weight of your head. So the head in the average person weighs about 12 pounds, but for every inch it comes forwards of the center of gravity, it doubles. Oh, wow. So I use the sort of analogy of if you had a tennis ball on your head and your head is at such an angle that that tennis ball would hit the desk in front of you, what stops your head from hitting the desk, right? Still under gravity. What stops it is the counterbalancing effect of the musculature that's going to contract in order to offset that load. So if you've got your chin poke forwards, you know, as a lot of people do over phones, you can have about 46 pounds of weight that's hanging off these muscles at the back. If if you're doing that on a on a regular basis, the brain kind of has a sort of efficiency drive and it's looking at energy output throughout the body and who's taking up more than their allocated share of of energy output. So if a muscle is being asked to grip to counterbalance that weight, it's taking a lot of energy to do that. If you do that habitually, the the brain will start going, if you want to hang out like that, I'm going to turn your nice contractile muscle tissue into something more fibrous that'll actually hold you there without having to burn a contraction to do it. So I often say to people, if you prod into your 
thigh muscles or your arm muscles and feel that sort of quite elastic consistency and then prod your <laughs> trapezius muscles here and they kind of feel like old boot leather. Yeah. They're a very different consistency. Even in some people, they're like, I, feel, I thought that was bone. You know, it's become so hardened. That's a, a, a structural change that the body has made. It's turned the more elastic fibers into a more leathery, fibrous material that's more like a ligament than a muscle that will hold and counterbalance the head in that position without having to burn a contraction to do it. The issue is that that has reduced the blood supply through there because the, the blood vessels run through that tissue. So you can get that sort of achy pain, which is when the muscles are asking for oxygen and they can't get it because there's too much tension there. Um, and because those muscles cross joints, like particularly the neck joints, it's now going to start to restrict your neck movement. And now people start saying, oh, well, I can't look over my shoulder when I'm in the car and I need to see what's coming. So it'll start to have effects on the underlying structures as well. And so and what we're doing is we're kind of um, solidifying ourselves into that shape that we do habitually. So if I and then what happens to the muscles at the front is they're getting shortened and also the fascia um, that coats all our muscles is kind of shaping itself, molding itself into that shape so that it'll provide the support you need to be in that um, non-neutral position. So if I then say, well, pull your shoulders back and you're now pulling against all this tense tissue, the muscles at the back have become weakened because they're not supporting. So they haven't got the power to then work against the tension of the tissue at the front, which is why you really need to get some hands-on work to release up the tight stuff, bring the blood flow back into the muscles that have kind of squeezed it all out, get them fired up so that they can counteract but, you know, otherwise you're asking very weak muscles to pull against a, a, an increased load and it's going to feel like a hell of a lot of work. So it's sometimes, you know, particularly if you're a singing teacher and you're seeing a particular posture with, with a student and you're saying, well, pull your shoulders back, stand up straight. You have to understand that's not going to be achievable necessarily in a short amount of time and they might need some hands-on work to help them get there um, if it's an ingrained posture. So what is the actual optimal posture that we should be adopting day to day? Yeah, and this is going to be sort of different for everyone as well. It's a very individualized thing. But generally, um, you know, you're looking again at that efficiency. So the center of gravity in the body is sort of aligned with sort of the center of your pelvis, really. If you think of your pelvis as a bowl, you think of a spot right in the middle of it. That's kind of our, our center. So if your head is above that, it's essentially weightless. Again, I use the analogy, you have a tennis ball on your head. If your head is in a position where that tennis ball will stay there without you strapping it down to your head, then you're on balance, right? If you're in any kind of position where that's off center and the tennis ball is going to hit the deck, you're not on balance. Um one of the things that I see people fall into the trap of, and again, it's quite a Victorian thing, actually, is <laughs> referring back to that straight backs, you know, deportment, as they were taught in those days, um, carry a book on your head, all that. Um, 
this I this notion of your back must be straight is not true. Backs are naturally curved, and this is where it becomes an individual thing. Um, I don't talk about straight backs. I talk about a neutral spine. And what's neutral for one might look very different to what's neutral for another. Some people, the curves in their spine. So this is we're talking about if your side view, the curves going front to back. Um, you know, we, we have a bit of an arch curve through the lumbar spine and then the thoracic spine curves a little bit forwards and then the, the neck tends to just straighten up that curve. Some people talk about an arch curve of the neck, but it's very, very minimal. Um, but those curves are there for a reason. They're there for shock absorption. So a dead straight structure doesn't dissipate forces as well as a curved one. So actually, I tend to see people who have more issues with, say, lower back pain often are people that either have a naturally much straighter spine um, or they um, have got to that place because they tuck their pelvis under as a habit, which is another issue with a lot of people sitting at desks and tucked. Mm-hmm. Um that because the the flatter the spine, the less good it is at absorbing forces. So if you think of every time you walk around, every time your foot hits the ground, there's a shock wave that goes through the whole body. And the body is kind of designed to dissipate that forces before it whacks up into your head. You know, the, the body is often trying to protect the brain because we can live without fingers and toes and even arms and legs, but we can't, if the brain's gone, we're in trouble. So it's kind trying to dissipate those forces so that you're not banging on your brain every time your foot hits the ground. So the spine, the curves of the spine help to dissipate those forces before they hit up into the, into the head. Um, so the, the, the flatter the spine, the less that shock absorption, the less efficient that shock absorption system is, but it's the Goldilocks thing, right? Some people, have got too much arch and they've gone to the other extreme. Some have too little. and We want that just right. But what the just right looks like in different people can be very different. So you might see somebody who appears to have quite a, a, an arched lumbar spine, but it's actually neutral for them. And all when we're looking particularly at, at vocalising, um, it's very important that those curves are in their neutral position because a lot of the muscles, particularly the diaphragm, um, attach into lumbar spine um, and actually require the lumbar spine to be in its neutral curve for their optimal functioning. Um, So if you, for instance, um, tuck your tail under, so what we call posteriorizing the pelvis, tucking the pelvis, um, that can actually affect the dynamics of of diaphragm actually because of the relationship of the psoas muscle, which is getting a little more complicated, but the psoas muscle actually is a continuation of the diaphragm. They are um, what's called interdigitated. They kind of blend into each other and they have a reciprocal relationship. And we actually require neutral tone of the psoas muscle for the diaphragm to work from it I always think of it as like a tug of war you know if if we're sort of holding hands and pulling away from each other with equal force we're in balance but if one is pulling too much and the other's weak it's going to fall this way and vice versa 
if if uh, I'm not giving you counterforce and you pull, you're going to be unstable. So the the diaphragm requires good tone from the the psoas muscle in order to do a nice stable um, in breath. If you're tucked, the psoas is actually loose. So it's a bit like you're a psoas, you're holding my hand, I'm I'm a diaphragm. I want to do a nice strong pull away, but you're loose. I've got nothing to stabilize me so that I can pull away strongly with confidence. Conversely, if someone's super arch, that means their psoas is really tight. And then the diaphragm's trying to pull against too much resistance. So it's the too much, too little. If your spine is neutral, it's just the conditions are just right for optimal diaphragm mechanics. So it was a little bit complex, but you start to see how, you know, in osteopathic terms, we have the phrase structure governs function. So how the structure is set up governs the function of the things that are attached to it. Some literature talks about being able to draw a line from the ear to the shoulder to the hip to the knee to the ankle. But then there are some pedagogues who talk about whether posture is a cause of a vocal difficulty or the symptom of something else, kind of considering this biopsychosocial idea. So what is your opinion there? What are we actually looking at when we're looking at alignment and posture? I mean, that's that's the key. It is multifactorial and we can't just look at optimal alignment as a series of coordinates on a sheet of graph paper and say, because it also um, puts the notion into the singers, that's what we're kind of talking about here, of, oh, I've got to be, if I move my ear two millimetres to the left, you know, I always say there's a, there's a difference between, what we're really looking for is stability. Are you in a stable position? And that's a dynamic state. And what I tend to see is what I call rigidity. So there's a difference between rigidity and stability. If you think of building a tall skyscraper, they're actually built to move in the wind, right? They're not built rigid. If you build it rigid and then you get a high wind altitude, it's going to snap the thing over. Same with like a suspension bridge. You think that's incredibly strong structure, but it's actually movable. It's flexible. That's mm-hmm. dynamic stability. And that's really what we're looking for. Stability is, is about your ability to autocorrect. It's not about being stuck in one position. If you're kind of rigidly held in this, this is perfect, I'm not moving, and somebody nudges you, you're just going to keel over. You need to be in a position that's dynamic. So if I come on over and nudge you, you can autocorrect from that position. So I don't like people to get into this state of thinking that they're so consumed with, is my ear over my shoulder, over my hip? that they can't think of anything else. And actually, they, they're they relatively unstable in that position. And what typically tends to happen, again, structure governs function. I think of that also for the emotional state. The more rigid someone's posture is, the more rigid emotionally they tend to be. 
And at the end of the day, as singers, yes, we have to have good technique and optimal mechanics to produce the sound. But what we're really doing is, you know, human communication, human expression. And if you have a conversation with somebody who's standing very still in a rigid posture, not moving anything, and is just talking to you and their mouth is moving, but nothing else is moving, that's freaky. <laughs> You're kind of like, this person's weird. And I had this a lot when I used to do uh, coaching for classical singers um, and particularly classical singing students as well, sort of, you know, college level students. And they're, you know, we call it the park and bark, right? Where they're one hand on the piano, stand still in this kind of rigid, la, 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 and it, all it is is just a mouth moving in this very rigid state. I'm like, that's not human. That's kind of weird. And if you were having a conversation with me, I'd, I'd be a bit like, I need to move away from this person. <laughs> I don't feel very comfortable. Um, so we need to find that human expression. And that's, a, again, a dynamic state. So what I I tend to talk about with, with, with singers is you need to know where your neutral is. And we can talk about how, how we find that, um, that is unique to you, but it is a felt sense. It's not a series of things on a checklist. Um, and it is a dynamic place from which you then communicate and express. But when your body knows where your optimal neutral is, it's like um, it's like a rest state place. So someone's off neutral, and particularly if they've had a lot of dance training, dancers tend to be pitched quite forward over the balls of their feet, which actually makes everything grip. It's not a good place for vocalizing in. Um, and again, there's a lot of energy expenditure there. It's not very efficient uh, for the body. Uh, you you start to limit your um, options at that point. I call it controlled falling. You're not in balance. You're in controlled falling. If you're in controlled falling, you don't have many options. So we need to know where the place is where we have options. But obviously, particularly if you're in musical theatre or something and you're dancing while you're singing, you're not going to be in your optimal neutral posture all the time just by nature of the choreography. But if your body knows where that neutral is, it's like, and if, again, I mentioned earlier, the, the brain likes to go for efficiency. Every time you pass through that, it's it's like a, um, a known quantity to the brain. And it's like, oh, we can rest there. We can have that moment of, oh, we're on balance and then we're off again. And then we're on balance and then we're off again. If you don't know where that neutral is, you're always in controlled falling. So helping uh, artists find where is your neutral, where's the, the most efficient place for you to vocalise from, but you don't have to be stuck there, but it's a place that you move in and out of. And every time you're in it, there's a moment of respite where when you're thinking about muscles, you know, a contracted muscle has no blood supply. The blood, as I mentioned, runs through the fibres of the muscle in the blood vessels. If your muscle's contracted, it's squeezing out the blood supply. It's like, you know, I say to people, if I ask you to hold your arm out with a, you know, if you had a bag in your hand or say, you know, you're just walking around with a heavy bag, you eventually get that burning pain in your muscle. That's called ischemic pain. That's the, the muscle running out of blood and going, can you please stop? And what do you do? You switch hands, right? You let the blood perfuse back into that muscle and then the pain goes away. 
if you are standing off your center all the time, you're basically in that ischemic position. So you're reducing the blood flow. In the neutral position, the blood can reperfuse into the tissues because you're in on balance, nothing's having to grip to hold you there. So if you're in performance and you're moving around, every time you pass through that neutral, the body can go, oh, reperfuse, or you're offloading different muscles in different positions. So one can fill up while the other one's being used. But if you're in this kind of stuck, rigid state, then you're getting into that issue, which is why people can often feel lightheaded sometimes, particularly when you're vocalizing there, because it's just there's just no flow. You know, we need to be in flow. Ah. Announcement! Listeners, if you've been thinking about joining the BAST community by taking one of our courses, but you just don't know which is the best option for you, then why not book a free call with our very own Kimberly George, who has all the answers? Head over to basttraining.com forward slash book a call forward slash and click that big blue button to request your free Zoom chat. That's basttraining.com forward slash book a call forward slash and you can find that link in our show notes too. Now, where were we? How does that relate to performers who might find themselves in a role, like take Quasimodo for as as an example because the performer there may well be directed into having more of this arched over posture they'll have the hump as part of their costume but as part of the character we know them to be hunched over that's quite an exhalatory position um i think uh, from alexander technique the monkey bend sort of position can be used to find like a splat breath for example how might that position impact that performer if they're always in that sort of bent over position? Yeah, it's huge. I mean, I, this is something I've worked with with artists for m- many years, particularly if you're doing eight shows a week, playing this particular character with a particular, and it's, you know, Quasimodo is an extreme example. I used to work with a lot of the um, Beauty and the Beast, people, you know, the wardrobe, Lumiere, you know, they're all in these fixed positions that are unnatural. Um, and uh, it's it takes a big toll. And I've seen a lot of injuries and issues as, as a result of, of that. Um, but, and it's, and it's like you say, it's not just those extreme examples. It may be that your character is very sad and enclosed and so is in this sort of shrunken posture because when we're talking about body alignment, just as I said to, you know, if a teacher sees around someone with round shoulders and just says, pull them back, they're not going to be able to if the tissue's shortened. They're also not going to be able to if they're not emotionally able. That might be an, an emotionally protective position that they're in. And by shifting them out of it, you can bring up a lot of stuff. And if you're not ready for that, you can actually destabilize them emotionally by making big shifts in posture. But similarly, if we're playing a character that has a particular body language that goes with it, um, you are still, you know, as, as an actor, as an artist, you're still physiologically getting the effects of what that person would have right mm-hmm. um so my my um the way i i um address that with with people is that you need to unravel it because you can end up falling into the trap I mean, particularly i've worked in the past with method actors right <laughs> who literally live that character 24/7 in order to to produce it 
and then they get all the issues that go along with whatever that character is. Unless you're playing like Mary Poppins, then you're going to be potentially Bossy. getting yourself into <laughs> into issues. Um, so you have to you have to come out of it. You have to offset it. So if you're, um, you know, your character is, say, the Quasimodo, where you're round-shouldered, you've got heavy-weighted costume and it's having a toll on the body, you have to do specific stretches to unravel, you know, stretch out the things that were tight, tighten up the things that were pulled long. Um, and you need a really a sort of a physical training routine that is there once you come off stage, you undo what was done so that you're not getting into cumulative effects. So whatever you did in that performance, you unravel with your stretches and strengthening routine so that you're not carrying it from one day into the next, into the next, into the next, into the next, until suddenly you've got back pain. And I've seen it a lot. I used to see um, when I worked with both West End performers and with Broadway performers, I would almost you know, they tell me what part they're playing in a different, in a particular show. And I knew all the things that they have going on. I even used to, there were some shows I would work regularly with the cast and the swing, if anyone's familiar with like the swing is, is somebody who covers several different roles. They're not on stage every night. They kind of hang in the dressing room. Then when someone's off, they go on for a certain role. If I was treating the swing, I'd be like, don't tell me oh, it's right side of your net. Oh, you went on for that last night. You were on for that cut. So I almost thought at one point I was going to write a book about all the injuries that go with particular characters in particular shows. Um, but um, so we, you need to know what the physical, you know, issues are with the particular role you're playing or the particular motion you're expressing and make sure you're unraveling that physically and emotionally as well. Make sure you remember who you are. For me, it's a similar thing to I've worked in the past with quite a few um, tribute artists who are singing in the voice of whatever artist all the time. And then they start to have issues uh, with their own because they're never singing in their own voice. It's like you have to spend time singing in your own voice as well. That's the equivalent to me of neutral posture. Where's your neutral for your voice so that you can go out to these extremes with a degree of elasticity, but you know where to return to neutral? So be it from vocal technique, be it from postural alignment, be it from emotional state, where are you? Where is your neutral physically, emotionally, technically? And make sure that you're, you know where that is, you're spending the time there and wherever you can during that performance, you're returning to it within the bounds of choreography, costume, whatever um, is being thrown at you. Elasticity is the key to, to being an artist. Yeah. And how, how can we even train that in, in the room? Are we, are we getting them to, it probably would help for them to understand what sort of position they might be in so that they can have a good vocal experience. But yeah, how can we bring that into the room so that we can adopt lots of different postures, but still have vocal efficiency? Yeah, so the key is to find that neutral for everyone because the person who's been hunched over their phone for ages and had their head forward, when I, you know, help guide them to where neutral is for them, they're like, oh, this feels like I'm falling backwards because your whole mind map of 
where you think neutral is has been offset to this new position that balances you around whatever it is you've been doing. So when, like you said earlier, you know, oh, neutral should feel efficient for most people who've been off that and I help them find their neutral and they're like, this feels like such hard work. This feels really weird. I feel like I'm going to fall backwards. I feel so helping people remap what the felts because at the end of the day this is this is not like like I said a thing a list on a checklist this is a felt sense of neutral and it will it does change people emotionally as well um so you need to be mindful of that um so finding um I mean I can talk through like a physical thing of how how to help people find neutral but as an artist if you know where that is then again, I talked to earlier about you've got options. I can go to this extreme, but I can come back to neutral. I can go to this extreme, I can come back to neutral, even emotionally. So if I'm coaching someone on a song and, you know, we want a particular emotional narrative to come through it, often I'll go, let's go right super large on this, like go over the top of being angry. Then let's bring it back find the extremes and then find on a like you know you don't just have like on or off you've got a fader then of how much of that do I want to dial in how how much of that emotion changes my physical shape and how can I dial that back a bit and when you've got that ability to have a fader on all these things be it a physical alignment be it an emotional alignment you can even choose on a daily basis basis if you're doing eight shows a week of the same thing you might be you know what I'm not going to take that to eight today because I'm feeling a bit off myself or I've got I'm nursing an injury or I think I'm just going to take that emotional expression to about a five today and and put it back so that you're eight you have the control over it you know most people feel like their bodies are in control of them um, or their emotions are in control of them Whereas if we know where neutral is, we know how far we can reach before we fall over and then gauge how far we want to go along that track and what the payoff is for that and what do I need to do to restitute that afterwards to offset it with stretches or whatever um, to rebalance myself afterwards. But if you don't know where you are to start with, then you don't have, you know, I often say you can have an idea and this is again for people even on a macro level of their career it's like you can have a goal about what you want to achieve you can have written yourself the best business plan of how you're going to get there but if you don't know your starting coordinates it's not going to happen right you can have a I want to get to this city I've got a map or a GPS to get there but I don't know where I'm starting from you're never going to get there and that's the issue most people don't know where they're starting from so they're trying to go to all these places and they're in control falling at that point which is inefficient physically and emotionally so how do we how do we find our neutral can you talk us through that yeah so the the first thing i normally do with people is to to find that spinal alignment and the best way to do it you know it's very nebulous for people particularly when they're sitting or standing because they're in their habit and they've got no kind of feedback to tell them, uh, you know, where, what, what, where, what's a guide point, what's a guide rail for that. So what I have people do is lie on the floor on their back 
knees bent so your feet are on the floor and your knees are bent because that softens the spine into a neutral position okay if you've got your legs straightened out that's a different thing and we'll we'll talk about that because that's a progression so you start with the knees bent feet on the floor lying on your back and then I get people to bring their awareness to the spine and I say right start at the base of your spine and you should feel your sacrum which is that triangular uh, bone at the base of the spine that's in contact with the floor typically and then you might find there's a little rise up above that the lumbar spine there's a little arch and I get people to slide a hand underneath how high is it how flat is it and again that's different for different people some people it's flat on the floor even in a resting position but for most people there's a little rise there then uh, feel your thoracic spine, the middle part of your spine, that's going to be coming back in contact with the floor and you'll feel the back of your ribs there, your shoulder blades, and then get a sense for um, balance between left and right because the body's not symmetrical. And again, people have this idea that everything in the body is perfectly symmetrical and you know everything matches up. It doesn't, either because of the way we grew, it's what we call an anatomical um, asymmetry, um, but it also may be a postural asymmetry that you play the cello or something and you've grown up around a cello in a rotated position and then your body's kind of fixed into that shape. So being aware and embracing your asymmetries, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, so some people have a little scoliosis in the spine. So when they're lying down, one side of their rib cage feels different to the other. It might be more in contact or less in contact than the other side. So embracing that, finding where is your neutral, then obviously coming up to the neck. And again, often the neck would rise up a little bit, you know, because the back of the skull's on the on the floor. Um, and so dial into what does that feel like? Can you get an inner mind map of that shape? What's touching, what's rising up? And that gives you a sense of your neutral curves. So once I've had people explore that, what I can also often do, which helps to, again, explore the extremes to find the middle from that position, once we've established where are my natural curves, okay, now tuck your pelvis, tilt that pelvis under, what's changed? Oh, now my lumbar spine's touching the floor, I've flattened out my lumbar curve. Okay, release back to the neutral. Okay, now arch and tilt the pelvis anteriorly the other way. Oh, I've now got a really extreme arch and my shoulders are being pushed into the floor more. Okay, that's the other extreme. Come back to the middle. So explore the extremes to find the middle and get them to get a sense of how how um, efficient does that feel to you? It's like, oh, that feels nice, that middle bit. Those other things feel like, oh, that's effort. That's effort. This feels nice, the Goldilocks. Once they've established that with the knees bent, I then get them to very slowly straighten the knees out whilst being mindful of what changes in the spine as that happens. So for some people, they might find as they straighten their legs out, they start to exaggerate that lumbar arch. They're tilting. So then I'll say, well, what, what's caused that? What do you think has driven that arch to increase? And typically what it is, is our hip flexor muscles, which when you've got your knees bent, we've got them switched off. As we're straightening our legs, we're strength straightening out those muscles. So that's the quad muscles, the ensofascialata, and also that psoas muscle. If those are tight, and people that spend a lot of time sitting at desks are tight in their hip flexors, they're pulling on, you know, the psoas in particular is pulling on the lumbar spine 
as as you go forward and tilting it more. So again, if that's the case, they might need some hands-on work to release the tension in those hip flexors in order to allow them to get into a neutral position with the leg straight, because by straightening the legs, we're actually representing what it's like to be standing, right? And these bent is the same as sitting. So, um, so it's bringing to their attention what is driving any changes in the alignment and what they need to pay attention to, maybe with some stretches or with some hands-on work to help release those tight uh, tissues. If you've got somebody who, when they straighten out, is actually still collapsed with that tucked pelvis, it may be they've got tight hamstrings, which are pulling the other way on the pelvis mm -hmm. and causing that tucked position. So it just allows them to explore what their habits are and what's driving that. So mm -hmm. once they've done that, now you can bring it into a standing position because they've kind of got the memory of what we call the kinesthetic feedback that they got from the floor. They can sort of recreate that. Or do you remember that sensation of what was touching the floor, what wasn't in that neutral position and recreate that in a standing position? And then again, in a standing position, I'll say, right, tuck that pelvis under. What's changed? Come back to neutral. Go into a tilted position. Come back to neutral. So they then explore it in the standing state and hopefully then they can start to get um, a connection with the felt sense of that neutral alignment and know okay this is the most efficient this is me in neutral and then I can explore from this from other places but I have my autocorrect place to to revert to it's like you you know where home base is so because you're you're a clinical osteopath is this still something that us mere mortals can do <laughs> in the studio of course i mean you can take take a student through that and do it on try it on yourself it's very easy um and it's one of those things if you're a teacher the more you you explore this with different students you'll start to see the differences in different morphologies different body types and um you'll start to get more of an eye for it as well so you'll actually be able to spot when someone's out you'll spot more subtle changes um it's like anything if you don't know something you look at it you don't see the subtleties but the more you get familiar with it you'll be able to tell subtleties and also explore okay let's try singing that with a really arch pelvis see how it changes the sound because again just the the body alignment can be a bit nebulous for people so what I'll often do with accompanying with that lying down, standing up and exploring those different positions, particularly in a standing position, I'll say, right, tuck that pelvis under, take a deep breath. What does that feel like? Now arch, take a deep, oh, that feels like a lot of effort. Come back to neutral, take your deep breath. Oh, that feels really juicy and, and, and elastic. So they can connect then the outcome with the position as well. Now try that vocal line, you know, if you're having, you'll often see as well, again, if, you're, if your eye is tuned to it, people will often, when they're going to a line they struggle with, maybe it's a particular pitch or range or something or, or an interval, they'll change something in their body to, to like muscle it to get, they'll tuck that pelvis or they'll arch it to try and achieve that. But it's actually sabotaging the line. So whatever they're doing, get them to do the opposite. And what did that change? Let's find that. Remember that neutral alignment? Okay, do not move out. Even, you know, you can put your hands around their pelvis and go, right, we're not moving from this position as you go. And they're like, I want to 
tilt to get that note. Let's stay here and see what happens. So again, you're they're then able to connect outcome from sound or from quality to a particular body position. And again, be able to explore different ways of getting that sound and come to a sense of what was the most efficient one for me to get that sound. So it's very important that we triangulate things. The nervous system likes to, the nervous system is kind of what's creating the software program, if you like, for achieving that line. What is what are the things that we want to put in that software program to so that that line comes out in the in a predictable way each time? Um, but it likes to have lots of the more points of 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 um, contact it has. Like I said, you need a starting point, a destination, and a map to get there. The more points of reference it has the more predictable that will be. So then that gets you out of the emotion. Because again, I see it with, again, tricky passages in songs. You see the fear coming in their eyes before they're about to do it. The fears already change the posture because body language is, follows emotions. <laughs> and they've sabotaged it physically because of an emotional anticipation of something that was attached to another thing, change the body position, the nervous system has no context there for the fear. So actually by changing the body position, you you can remove the emotional fear out of it. One of the quick and easiest things I do, particularly, I mean, it's often the high notes that people are stressing about, right? Quick and easy way to do it that literally clears up 99% of these issues is I get people to hang upside down and sing it. Yeah. Yeah. And suddenly none of the problems exist. I say, but if you can do it there, you can do it. It's not that you can't do it. It's just something you're doing when you're the other way up under gravity is sabotaging it. So let's figure out what that is and eliminate that. And then when that's not present, the nervous system doesn't have a context for it, it doesn't work that was attached to this other posture. So it can can quickly get people out of, you know, their their little dead end passageways that they get attached to with certain certain notes or passages. Coming up in part two, we are delving into the optimal teaching setup, how the body presents emotional life, and the importance of body language in the audition scenario. We'll see you there. If you're enjoying the Singing Teachers Talk podcast, and who are we kidding? Of course you are. Share the love by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a comment. Just head to the Singing Teachers Talk main page on the Apple Podcast app and scroll to the bottom to click Write a Review.